When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Fiona Hill, the former White House insider and national security expert, talks Russia, the unfolding crisis in Ukraine, and her recent book, which reflects on the global political trends that got us here. Our guest today is an authority on foreign policy and national security. Fiona Hill has advised three former U.S. presidents, including the Trump administration, which she later testified against, and is the author of several books, including Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. Today, she is the senior fellow at the Centre on the US and Europe at the Brookings Institution, but she was born in the north of England, and after going on to study in both Moscow and at Harvard, eventually became a US citizen. Her latest book, There Is Nothing For You Here, is both a memoir and a reflection on why disenfranchised voters create fertile ground for populist policies and strongman leaders, be they in Moscow, London or Washington. Our host today is Josh Glancy, special correspondent for the Sunday Times and formerly Washington bureau chief for the paper. According to Josh, whenever issues of Russia come up, and they come up a lot, you always want to hear from Fiona Hill. Let's join the conversation recorded shortly after President Joe Biden's 19th of January press conference. Fiona, we heard from President Biden yesterday what may have been a slip or, or not, it's not clear, uh, talking about Russia menacing Ukraine and the troops it has on the Ukrainian border. And he said, it's one thing if it's a minor incursion, which got a few people hot under the collar. What did you make of that? And what do you make of, of the Biden administration's general posture towards this issue and towards Russia and Ukraine? Well, thanks so much, Josh. I'm really pleased to be with you and with everybody else on Intelligence Squared today. And, you know, if, if we look at what Biden said yesterday, I think he was just expressing out loud, you know, perhaps it might be better if presidents, um, you know, didn't always <laughs> strive for such transparency and said these kind of things quietly behind uh, closed doors. You know, what everyone is grappling with the moment, it's, um, you know, what exactly is President Putin planning on doing? Is he going to go big in terms of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which would frankly be one of the most uh, devastating challenges to the international system since World War II? I mean, it'd be a massive overturning of many of the premises of the United Nations system, for example, by yet another invasion or incursion, you know, depending on the term you want to use here, um, of Ukraine and seizing territory or trying to topple the government in Kiev, you know, for example. This would be even on a bigger scale from what we saw Iraq do in 1990 when it moved against uh, Kuwait, basically saying that Kuwait wasn't a real country and that, uh, you know, Kuwait's oil fields and everything were up for grabs by Iraq. You know, you might remember, of course, we all remember then about what a big impact, you know, that, that had on world affairs. It would be a massive precedent setter for issues globally, not just in Europe uh, or in the you know former Soviet space. 
And then, you know, he might not do that at all. And that's, you know, kind of, I guess, what Biden was trying to grapple with and acknowledging the fact that reactions uh, by the United States and the West uh, writ large and the world would be different. You know, if Putin uh, does more of what he's already done, which is sparking off a war in Donbass, trying to sort of consolidate some of the positions there, we did see the Russians making a push outside of Donbass to try to stir up civil conflict, communal violence, and uh, potentially an uprising in support of you know Russia and uh, you know kind of against the government in Ukraine in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea and uh, the sparking off of the conflict in Donbass. There was all kinds of activities going on elsewhere. They pulled back from it uh, because of sanctions and uh, you know pushback. Uh, from Europe and the United States. We saw, of course, the downing of uh, MH17, the Malaysian Airlines uh, flight over Donbass. We've had lots of things going on there. And I guess what Biden was trying to do is, is saying here, perhaps you know, somewhat ineptly, that we have a whole range of possibilities and obviously our reactions are likely to be different. I mean, he's, like, he's acknowledging the fact that European allies are not likely to be quite as forceful in their response if it isn't you know, a major invasion. And of course, this was very ineptly put and, you know, with um, uh, all kinds of uh, responses from Kiev and from others, uh, again, these kinds of things were better uh, discussed behind closed doors. But it just is underscoring about what a dilemma we're in. And another point that I just want to say here, first of all, is that all of this is playing into Russia's hands, the reaction to this too. Because um, Vladimir Putin and those in the Kremlin like nothing more than when we're at loggerheads with each other. When we're arguing about their hypothetical steps, they've already achieved what they want to have by all of this maneuvering and machinations. They've got us all guessing and fighting with each other about what is likely to happen. So you're not quite as alarmed as, as some people were on my Twitter feed last night. But is it then fair to say that you're, you think the Biden administration's approach has broadly been the right one? I mean, I'm sure there are aspects of it you might refine, but um, do you think they're broadly taking, which is tough, but not, not extremely tough, I would say? What, what do you think? I uh, think that actually they're doing the best that they can here. I think under the circumstances when, I mean, obviously, you know, we might uh, want to see, you know, better coordination, a little bit more clarity on some of the steps that have been taken, more, much more coordination, I would say, with the allies and others behind the scenes on getting our talking points and our other you know, ducks in a row. But given the uncertainty, um, I think, you know, we're handling it or they're handling it as best as they can at this particular moment. What we have to do is not get all kind of caught up in just responding and reacting to things that the Russians are doing and that Putin's doing. I mean, they're doing even more now than they were before, right? Every time, you know, we, we pause, uh, Putin makes another move, which is exactly what he's known for. It's his, uh, his trademark. He's the master of preemption. He has lots of contingencies. He tries to lay out there as many options as possible. He's not going to kind of stay still while we move on into a whole host of uh, negotiations and try to figure out, you know, kind of our next phase. He's going to keep on moving. He's um, up the ante. He's uh, got exercises going on now in Belarus. I mean, you might remember that after the uh, previous round of meetings, they had live fire exercises in Russian territory. Now they've announced these major exercises and they've got everybody on the move into Belarus next door to Ukraine. Uh, they're talking about, you know, moving um, hypersonic missiles within striking distance of the United States in Cuba and Venezuela. There's uh, reports in Interfax and in one of the Russian uh, media agencies about ships uh, coming down into potentially into the Black Sea from the Baltic, you know, for example. And there seem to be amphibious assault. So that's kind of raising all kinds of other questions there. What we're going to have to get ahead, and this is kind of where the onus is on uh, the administration ahead of the game here. 
uh, reframe the issue, not be constantly reacting to the various moves that Putin is doing. And that's going to require having a, a bigger diplomatic effort. I think we have to take this to the international stage at this point, because you know, Putin really is threatening the international system and the UN system. He's threatening the independence and sovereignty of a country that's been recognized for the past 30 years as a member of the United Nations General Assembly. And you know, he's setting a precedent you know, for a much bigger player by other countries as well. He's challenging not just the security and independence and sovereignty of Ukraine, uh, but also the role of NATO and the whole structures of uh, European security, demands that NATO withdraw from all the kind of positions and deployments since 1997 and the founding of the NATO-Russia Act. He's talking about the United States pulling out. There's all these documents that have been submitted by the um, Russian foreign ministry, for example, so the United States pulling out of um, its positions in Europe as well, and then casting these larger questions about the US role and interactions with the United States in a global perspective. So we have to somehow, you know, get control of the agenda. And perhaps that speech yesterday wasn't the best way of doing that. Yeah, and it, it seems certain that the China is watching this very carefully uh, with its own designs on on Taiwan. Yeah. You know, Fiona, you, you literally wrote the book on Putin. Uh, you've met Putin. It's a very good book. You know, but Russia watchers always get asked this question, what does Putin want? Uh, it's a sort of almost a cliche at this point. But we are obviously very much responding, as you say, to, 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 to this one man and his strategies and his, his preferences. You know, I've had friends who, who write about Russia sort of say to me that Putin is almost at this stage thinking of himself on a kind of grand historical stage that he's almost thinking himself in terms of kind of Napoleon or Catherine the Great. I don't know, maybe that's a bit flighty, but what, what do you think Putin really wants here? What's his goal or is he just trying to see what he can get? Well, I think all of those things are valid. Putin has been in power now coming to 22 years and he has said and uh, also has managed to secure through amendments to the Russian constitution the possibility of uh, fulfilling um, his pledges to stay in office till 2036. Now, he has to put himself up for re-election in 2024, even though you know we might be somewhat sceptical about the competitive nature of that election with the only viable candidate um, who's stepped up in opposition to him, Alexei Navalny, sitting in a penal colony uh, miles away from Moscow, having managed to survive an assassination attempt against him. It shows that Putin means business in making sure that there's no real opposition if he's in, uh, indeed chooses to uh, put himself up for re-election in 2024, which we assume that he does, unless there's something going on with his health or you know, something else that we're not aware of right now. Uh, and he's definitely thinking about his legacy, even if he is planning on being there till 2036, by which time, of course, he'll be 84 years old. So lots of things can happen between now and then. He has... Uh, cloaked himself in the garb of his uh, more illustrious predecessors, uh, the great uh, emperors, czars and czarinas of uh, the Russian imperial past, as well as uh, Soviet leaders. His very name, Vladimir, you know, evokes the idea of uh, Vladimir the Great, Prince of Kiev, uh, no less, who uh, Christianized Russia, um, you know, by the myth in Crimea. Putin, you know, has kind of basically taken on all of them and assumed all of those kind of ideas and sort of titles for himself. He clearly sees himself as a kind of a Russian monarch, a kind of a constitutional monarch, but a few checks and balances, you know, in the kind of the form of the presidency. So there's all of that going on there. 
But I think there's something else, you know, that may be going on as well. I mean, I think it probably hasn't escaped uh, everyone's notice that although he's been sort of seen all over the place on television screens and out and about a little bit, he's also been confined to base. He's obviously in rather splendid isolation, you know, in one of his money offices and daches. But, you know, kind of what kind of information is the guy getting? You know, what is his mindset like? I mean, we're all uh, pretty much confined in these little Zoom boxes that we've been in all the time. We've all got kind of stir crazy and cabin fever. And I certainly think that, the, you know, the COVID pandemic has messed with everyone's minds here, right? You know, so what kind of information is Vladimir Putin getting? Is he, um, you know, perhaps miscalculating in terms of what he thinks he can get here? He's put so many options on the table uh, so many maximalist demands on NATO, Ukraine, the United States. And we've got no sense of what the floor is to these demands. We're trying to kind of set that right now by, you know, probing and uh, various meetings. And he doesn't seem to have given himself much room to walk back. Unless, you know, if he kind of basically pulls back from saying he's going to um, send missiles to Cuba and Venezuela, he betrays that because of some compromise or concession uh, that the United States and others have made. And so I think we're actually in a rather difficult position right now. No one's very clear about his mindset. Maybe he you know, himself, and I think that's kind of pretty good, but hasn't completely made up his mind of what he's going to do. And, you know, he's trying to see how we react, but how we react may actually constrain, you know, some of his actions or even encourage him, you know, to do things that he might not have intended to do before. Because at this point, there's also a lot of people saying this is just a bluff. This is just an elaborate, you know, kind of uh, exercise to get us to concede to things that, you know, he has, um, you know, no expectation otherwise that we're going to get. And he has no intention of actually invading Ukraine. There's plenty of people are saying this right now, and but it's also very plausible. But as we react and, you know, that becomes that dynamic, you know, he actually um, has to show that it's not a bluff. And I think you know, that's one of the reasons why Biden and others are actually speaking out and saying, look, this is not a guy that normally bluffs. We have to take this seriously. He's going to do something because, you know, Putin has to, you know, he can't disappoint the fans. He's got all these people who expect him to do something. He says, if I threaten, I deliver. And there comes a point where he actually has to do something rather than, you know, playing games and military exercises. And that's the dangerous uh, point that we're in right now. Of course, when I get pandemic cabin fever, I order too much pad thai, but... Um, sure, Putin, you don't do this. Putin threatens to invade Ukraine. I guess that's the difference between me and Putin, or one of them. Uh, I'll just ask you one more question on, on this current situation, and then we'll sort of move on to the book. It's been a very apparent this week that, that, that Britain has taken quite an advanced role in some of this. They've been sending anti-tank missiles to Kiev. Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, wrote quite a strident uh, post, caught a lot of attention this week. Just interested in your assessment of that. It seems like at times we've been perhaps even a little bit ahead of the Americans, at least in our willingness to engage, certainly ahead of our French and German uh, former friends. So just, I'd just be interested in your, your assessment of, of Britain's role in this so far. Well, these have been bold moves. And uh, I think uh, Ben Wallace's recent essay, opinion piece, was excellent in terms of actually reframing or framing the issue in uh, a different light. And that was kind of, you know, one of the points that I was trying to make there, that we have to, you know, get ahead of this and not let, you know, Russia completely drive everything and us to react uh, in response to their actions. And, you know, well, there was one thing that really struck me um, about Ben Wallace's piece, of course, you know, he points out what a straw man is and, you know, keeps mentioning it to everyone. I think he's actually encouraged the State Department in the United States to come up with some something similar on uh, Russian disinformation. That, you know, Russia's point about encirclement by NATO is kind of ridiculous, particularly if you uh, take 
um, as you should, the fact that Ukraine and all the other countries um, that were formerly members of the uh, Soviet Union are now independent sovereign states and have been recognised as such by, you know, the international community. Because today the borders of uh, NATO with Russia, where it actually touches, as he points out, are only with Norway, the Baltic states and Poland. And that's, you know, around the exclave of Kaliningrad, um, you know, pretty much for places like Lithuania and Poland. So 6% of territories, he points out. So, you know, 94% of Russian territories encircled by China, Mongolia and Kazakhstan. And there is, of course, you know, the maritime border with the Aleutians and Kamchatka, you know, with the United States. But a lot of it is the Arctic, <laughs> which, you know, Russia has pretty much claimed for itself. So, you know, there are some preposterous things here. And, you know, calling that out is important. And I'm very glad he did that because, you know, then we have to clarify what it is that we're actually dealing with. And, you know, those are the kind of grievances and the demands that the Russians have had for the last 30 years. So I think, you know, more of that is actually very welcome and it's been done very well. And I think what would be important now is, you know, you made the reference, the quip to, you know, the former friends of France and Germany. We need to be friends again because what we have to have here is unified messaging, unified points that are made. If others can bring those points forward and call Russia out for what it is and what it's doing, that needs to be done at the international level and the UK can help with that and, and try to bring on, you know, the rest of, you know, European partners on board as well. Norway is not in the EU, you know, the Norwegians could make some points. I mean, they have a border, you know, with Russia, for example. How do we craft a major diplomatic response that calls, you know, kind of Russia out and then gets the heart of what we should be talking about. I mean, I do think that there is a case to be made, not at the point of, you know, basically um, a gun, a tank, you know, kind of a hypersonic missile, about how do we refresh and refurbish, you know, the European security arrangements after 30 years. We've The, the world has moved on, there's all kinds of things happening. You know, clearly, you know, we have a lot to contend. We've got the three C's that everyone's talking about, China, COVID and climate change. And Russia is wanting to get our total undivided attention at the moment. There's a lot of acting out by Putin right now to make sure that we're, he's not forgotten in this. Mm. I mean, I do remember when I was in you know, the Trump administration, for example, the Russians didn't like it when President Trump was trying to do what he thought was, you know, kind of giving them a break on things like cyber, for example. Whenever there was a cyber intrusion, we kind of knew it was the Russians. Trump would say, well, it could be the Chinese or, you know, the Chinese are the biggest threat there or it could be a guy sitting on his bed in, you know, New Jersey. It doesn't have to be the Russians. The Russians are like, it is us, it's us, <laughs> you know, because they want it to be, you know, tra treated seriously as a major power in cyberspace and in space. They've just, you know, taken out a satellite, uh, an old satellite, admittedly, to show us what they can do. And, you know, in the subsea space, threatening, uh, you know, undersea cables and, you know, every domain that matters, they want to be, treated seriously as a partner there potentially uh, for negotiations and definitely as a threat you know so they want to make sure that we treat them seriously and we engage with them and we don't just try to ignore them and pretend they're not there and so there's a strong element of that going on here as well okay so let's go back to the beginning one of the subtitles in your book is from from coal house to white house and you know, you, you were born, I think, 1965 in, in Bishop Auckland. Sorry that I shouldn't have revealed I'm that. Old, it's on, it's it's on Wikipedia. I'm, I'm OK with that. Um, <laughs> you describe yourself in your book as, as you know, your, your career and life as improbable. I wonder if you could explain why. Well, if you look back to that time frame, and although a lot of stuff has changed in the UK, you know, since I left in 1989 when I came first to study in the US and before I became a citizen here. But if you look down to, back to that period, 65 to let's just say when I first went um, to university in St Andrews in you know 1984 
Even going to university for anybody in the UK at that time was something of a rarity. It was like, what, five for six percent, you know, kind of, of of students, you know, going on from A-levels and, you know, going on to college. You know, it was um, highly improbable and unlikely for someone from a working class background, from a comprehensive school, this was, you know, at the end of the grammar school system, uh, to go to university. So that in itself was kind of improbable. And the title of the book, There's Nothing For You Here, is what my dad said to me in 1984 when I was leaving school. And it was against the backdrop of a massive unemployment crisis in the northeast of England and actually in Britain um, as a whole that kind of peaked, you know, a couple of years later with, you know, the massive layoffs in heavy industry in the manufacturing sector, you know, the privatisation campaign of um, heavy nationalised industry under Margaret Thatcher. But also in the north of England and more broadly, there was a, a huge youth unemployment crisis. So 90% of people who were leaving school at that point didn't really have anything else to go on to. The 10% who did, you know, might be going on to college or, you know, uh, what was then, you know, more polytechnics, technical college, vocational colleges, apprenticeships, but 90% of people trying to figure out what they were going to do. And it was highly improbable, you know, that I would then find, you know, something, you know, to do with myself coming from a town where there was massive unemployment. My dad had um, left school at 14, gone into the mines, didn't have any qualifications whatsoever, continually lost his job in the mines as one closed down after another, you know, in the 60s. And he'd become a hospital porter by that point, an auxiliary worker in the, the National Health Service at the lowest rung of the ladder. We were living on the poverty line, you know, the working poor. My mom had been a nurse, I was, uh, I was still a nurse and had gone, you know, from school at 16 to train to be a nurse. And the prospects that you know faced me back then in Bishop Auckland were pretty limited. So my dad was saying, look, if you've got this chance to go to university, it was going to be paid for my Durham County Council, my local education authority, because of you know uh, my uh, economic background, you're going to have to look somewhere else for opportunities. It's not going to be here. There's not going to be a job for you back here. And so, you know, you've got to move on now, you know, where I was going to move on to, I thought at the time, having decided to study Russian, then I might become an interpreter, I might be sitting around, you know, with headphones on like this, you know, perhaps a GCHQ interpreting, you know, fighter pilots, you know, kind of going off onto, you know, um, skirmishes across the, 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 the North Sea and into the Baltic, or, you know, I thought even better, you know, that maybe I might become an interpreter, maybe the United Nations or for, you know, the British for arms control negotiations, that was the moment, it was the war scare of, you know, the 1980s. I never expected in a million years that I would end up, you know, advising US presidents in the White House. I mean, it didn't even occur to me at that point that I might end up in, in the United States. So it was a kind of a combination of the circumstances, the place where I was, and then, you know, the opportunities that were open to me at the time. I mean, going to university was a big opportunity, but I didn't understand at all how things would unfold. And a lot of it was timing. A lot of it was, was these great opportunities in education that had opened up. And an awful lot of it was luck, honestly, chance encounters with people that put me on a path that, you know, I wouldn't have known about. Certainly not back in Bishop Auckland. And there's a, uh, for me, a very, a very sort of um, memorable vignette in your book where you, you talk about watching um, Princess Anne's wedding in 1973 and you uh, go to a neighbour's house and, and well, not you're, you're, out, you're outside watching through the kind of net curtains trying to make sure you're not seen because they're going to shoo you away because uh, you don't have a TV. I mean, you don't have telephone and you don't even have electricity some of the time. So you describe yourself and your family at that time as we, we were as being like refugees in our own land, a sense that all the things that anchored you to, to your home had somehow been cast adrift. Is that obviously alongside the opportunities you gained? But do you think that's one reason why you've ended up in 
America because th- your own place was just sort of taken away from you in a way. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think that if I'd been born somewhere else in the UK, I probably wouldn't have left. And, you know, one option was to come to London, but I didn't really know anyone, you know, in London. And many of my fa- my friends, you know, from that time did move away, you know, from Bishop Auckland and find jobs in different places, but often with quite a bit of difficulty. An awful lot of people went to Australia, Canada, the United States because, you know, being British, we've always got lots of people who had emigrated, in fact, in the 1960s. I had a host of relatives who did emigrate um, under, you know, those kind of various schemes that were in the British Commonwealth when they were looking for labour in Australia and Canada and other places to work. And they'd gone. And so that might have been a logical, you know, place to go. But it was, you know, kind of that, that sort of sense of everything was in disarray. I mean, really the description of being refugees um, wasn't so much about Bishop Auckland itself because there was still, you know, some kind of capacity there. But my dad had grown up in all the in uh, the pit villages around Bishop Auckland in County Durham, and they were just devastated. Everything closed down. You know, my grandparents lived in a place called Rodimua, but another place called Crook that no one's ever heard of. And this is just, you know, a few miles away from Bishop Auckland. And those places were just flattened. The mines closed down. There was nothing there. The shops disappeared because there was no... Um, spending uh, capacity, the bus route stopped. Some of them were um, categorised as what County Durham called Category D villages and settlements, which meant they, you know, were devoid of any future. And so there was no point in paying for services for them. So, you know, that's when the bus, bus routes disappeared. And some of the people from the pit villages were encouraged to leave and to go and live in new towns like Newton Aircliff and other places that were built up in County Durham. So it was actually very reminiscent of the Soviet Union when I got there. Similar sort of things were happening. And, you know, I felt for myself there, yeah, got to leave. You know, we're, we're not just getting left behind, we're getting forgotten. And, you know, kind of, this is starting to look like a wasteland. I talk about in the book about spending an awful lot of time listening to the special song Ghost Town, which is obviously written in a different setting, but it was kind of just reminiscent of what was happening. Everywhere you looked around, everything was boarded up and there was just, you know, a little opportunity. Things have changed quite a lot, but it was really that spur. I've got to go somewhere else. And this shocking, surprising opportunity to apply for a scholarship to go to Harvard popped up when I was in the Soviet Union in 1987-1988 on a study abroad year paid for by the British Council. It never occurred to me that there were opportunities like that out there. And I applied and then I get it. I mean, the biggest surprise ever that a kid like me from Bishop Auckland, Bishop Barrington Comprehensive School, you know, daughter of a coal miner who left school at 14, would get a scholarship to study at Harvard. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So you made your way first to St. Andrews, then, then to Moscow, then to Harvard. And, and since then, you, you know, you've had a very illustrious career um, in Washington. But, but you've seen America change in that time. And, and you, you say this, there's this one line in the book that really has haunted me, no pun intended, which is that you describe Russia as the ghost of America's future. And I think your point there is that the kind of descent into corruption into sort of authoritarianism, thuggishness, the kind of fraying of democracy is something we've seen in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. But, but you, you sense some of those same things afoot in America and maybe to, maybe to a lesser extent in Britain too. But I wonder if you could kind of talk about that a bit more. Why do you think that America and, and, and maybe Britain too is sliding towards a more Russian way of life, a uh, more Russian model, and, and, and what might we do to prevent it? Well, look, I mean, there are some pretty obvious ways here beyond some of the things that I mentioned in the book, which we're looking at, you know, the, the way that the structure of politics in the United States has changed. Um, I'll talk about that just briefly, and then I'll, I'll touch on some of the other things, which, you know, kind of painful and uncomfortable to admit, but, you know, very relevant in the context of contemporary politics. And I'm probably going to be a bit of a bomb thrower when I say this, so just, you know, kind of impress yourself on this end. But structurally, and this is not the case in the United Kingdom, by the way, but certainly is in the United States, that the presidency in the US has changed over time. So first of all, the ghost of Christmas future in Charles Dickens, as we all know, a Christmas carrot doesn't have come to pass, right? It's spectral, it's, you know, got not got um, full form. It doesn't have to happen. Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, kind of realises that he can change and this doesn't have to happen. So this does not have to happen. That's just kind of putting it out there and as it's an apparition it's not fully formed either but it's just you know something that you can see that could happen there on the horizon and there's a lot going on in the united states the storming of the u.s capitol in january 6 the fact that you know president trump is out there convincing millions of people uh that um he actually won the election in 2020 when he absolutely did not and you're also getting in polls uh, depending on what they are anything from seven to you know kind of 12 and even more percentage of people saying that it's um entirely justifiable to use violence 
uh, to press your political issue in the current environment because, you know, the other side is the enemy. We've got so much, you know, acute polarisation and partisan warfare. But it's the presidency itself that started to make this possible. And there's a, there's a peculiarity in the US system. You do not have to be a member of the party that you get to be the candidate for the presidency, uh, you know, before you throw your lot in. President Trump could theoretically have also decided to run as a Democrat. But the populist, you know, kind of uh, arena there was taken up by Bernie Sanders. He'd been registered as a Democrat before. And of course, um, the Democratic Party was dominated by the Clintons and, you know, Hillary Clinton was going to run. So there wasn't much scope there. The Republican Party was up for grabs. There were 17 candidates by the time that he jumped in there. And, you know, he registers as as a Republican. He's not had any previous government experience and, um, you know, he's a celebrity businessman. He can pay for whatever he wants. And that's the peculiarity to the system. He can put together a, a campaign. He can pay as much as he wants and he gets airtime. I mean, he gets airtime for free in the media. He's the wildcard candidate. All the other candidates knock themselves out and he's hijacked the Republican Party. And he's continued to do that ever since. It's more difficult to do that in the UK context. I mean, Nigel Farage hijacked the agenda, but he didn't hijack the Con- Conservative Party in the sense of becoming the leader and he's not the prime minister. But, you know, he has had a huge consequential impact on British politics by spearheading and, you know, triggering off the movement for, for Brexit, for example. But in the British system, and there's all these debates going on right now, prime ministers can be removed and they have to be part of the party in the first instance. You know, there's a lot more party discipline. And so, you know, in the United States, that's just not there. And over time, the presidency is also more from being, you know, this kind of beauty contest of the candidates, you know, kind of based on their personality. And it's, it's, you know, three things in one, commander-in-chief, you know, chief um, executive and head of state, so the military and, you know, the, the cabinet um, affairs and then, you know, the symbol of the state, like in Britain, you've got the checks and balances with the queen and the prime minister and, you know, different divisions there. But you don't have that. And over time, more and more powers have accrued to the presidents in, uh, in theory. And the checks and balances have dropped away. You can rule by executive order. Trump wasn't the only person who did that. That's been uh, a phenomenon that's been developing more and more in the US. And so what I was going to basically saying in the book, and I go into more detail in this, you're kind of trending in this way of a presidency that starts to look more like a Russian presidency. Vladimir Putin isn't, you know, a member of the of the party, uh, of any party. There is a ruling party. The Russian Duma has become a rubber stamp. Trump's trying to do that with the, you know, the Congressional Republican Party. And if the House flips in 2022 and he's got more of his loyalists in place, it's a rubber stamp for, you know, activities and maybe in support of him, you know, coming back into power in 2024. You know, he's pulling away or has been trying to do pull away the court system, affect, you know, kind of electoral outcomes, all the kinds of things that you've seen, you know, things happening, even though he's not in power, but, you know, Putin doing in Russia. And and uh, Trump was constantly calling for a redo of, of his presidency. He was, you know, denied the full fruits of his presidency the first time because of the Russian investigations. He wanted a, a redo and a potentially getting rid of term limits. He just throw all of that out there. You know, so there's a lot happening there that is a big challenge. As I said, in the UK system, there's more checks and balances, but, you know, you can chip away at those. The other area where we've become much more like Russia, and this is why I'm going to kind of throw a bomb out there, and he's looking at you, a whole bunch of, you know, UK former prime ministers and, you know, business people and, you know, others, uh, you know, key officials who decide to go and work for Russian oligarchs. We have so much corruption in our system now. We have, you know, people in the United States as well 
you know, who go and work for adversarial corporations, be it with Russia and China, you know, countries that we've got major political problems with. You know, we've had our former vice presidential candidate and Senator Lieberman, you know, working for you know big Chinese telecommunications company. You have George Osborne. So I hear, you know, working for Oleg Deripaska and, you know, others, you know, taking kind of funding, you know, from Russian oligarchs. We allow into, you know, our legal and other systems, you know, Russian oligarchs who want to press nuisance cases against everything from, you know, journalists to others who, you know, seem to malign them, you know, campaign contributions, shell companies. The Panama Papers and then the Pandora Papers have revealed all kinds of ways in which money and finance can slosh around in our systems and influences. And whenever there is a major political problem, that's the levers that the Russians and others pull. So just as you know, one example, after the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko in London uh, by polonium, um, you know, which was the first use of a dirty bomb, essentially in a human form um, around uh, the capital, putting polonium and you know, trace elements all over the place. When uh, the British government tried to push back and others tried to push back, there was still everyone flocking to the St. Petersburg um, Economic uh, Conference, business people still, you know, signing, you know, major deals. And Putin literally said, hmm, OK, this is all political. Nobody really cares because your business guys are still making, you know, billion dollar deals with us. And so every time Putin and the others, you know, kind of they reckon uh, that, you know, we are so influenceable that all they have to do is, you know, dangle billions of dollars around, you know, kind of pull the levers with all the people who work for them. They're not work, work with them, work for them, and that we will pull back from things that we're trying to do. So we need to clean up our own act. And I think, you know, we've had plenty of discussions about this. You've had discussions with this. I mean, you had Catherine Belton talking about Putin's people, you know, on um, Intelligence Squared as well. And I mean, you've done plenty of investigations into this yourself, Josh. I mean, we need to, you know, realise how that can all be leveraged. We've been making the point to the Germans forever that it's not just Nord Stream 2. Remember, there was also Nord Stream 1. This is the second time that they've, you know, done this recently. And then there's all the Soviet-era pipelines for gas and oil. Yes, the Russians have fulfilled their contracts, but they've also put all kinds of people on their boards, uh, forged all kinds of joint ventures to guarantee that they can use this as political leverage and influence. Mm. Well, that's... (laughs) <laughs> Fascinating sorry, subject. You, a, no, you, you clearly have I personalize strong it well views. And, you know, I'm sorry. I'm just going to call it as it is because we've all got these dilemmas. Think tanks, mm. you know, in the US, we've all got these problems there. You know, how do we fund ourselves? How do we do business? But we have to accept that there's this interdependence and that's leverage. My last question for you, Fiona, is just on the, the Trump years. Um, you know, I remember sitting in a very chilly uh, room somewhere in Congress watching you give your testimony, it made you quite famous, uh, for at least at the time. You know, how, how do you reflect on that now? And, and uh, we're going to move to questions. So it's obviously quite a, this is obviously quite a long, important period of your life. But, but how do you reflect on your time in the Trump administration now, on your decision to join the Trump administration? on the work you did there and, and, and what happened to you when that impeachment trial took place because you became both famous but also a target for, for many trolls. I know that's a lot of a lot of things happened to you. So uh, if you could <laughs> take us through that as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I do remain a target. I'm sure I'll be more of a target now after some of the things I've said and you know, kind of there, you know, as well. But, you know, this is what comes with the territory. You know, you've just got to step up there and take a deep breath and forge on because, you know, this is kind of what's happening in the world and 
someone's got to call it out, just like Ben Wallace, you know, called it out in that recent article. And, you know, we continue to do that. You know, you've got to stand up there uh, uh, when it matters. And that's what I tried to do, you know, during the impeachment, along with many other people. I mean, there were other fact witnesses there. And we'd all taken an oath of office. We'd all undertaken to do our jobs. And, you know, most of us there were uh, non-partisan professionals, although, you know, technically I was a, a political appointee. And I don't regret one little bit actually going in to do what I was trying to do as uh, senior director in the National Security Council, which was to try to push back about against what the Russians had done in 2016 and in the in intervention in the US presidential election. You know, I've been around, you know, the Russian bush for a very long time. You know, I'd spent all this time looking at Putin. I'd already been national intelligence officer. There was a lot of people I knew who were um, going into the administration or still working, you know, as career officials that I worked with in the past. And it seemed like an all hands on deck moment. And we needed to do something to push back and figure out, you know, what we were going to do to handle this, because it made a hell of a mess in US domestic politics. Now, that was probably the area where I was most naive. I mean, I've said in um, other public settings, I knew more about the Kremlin and what they were up to than I did about what people were up to in and around the White House. And I was got a bit of a shock, <laughs> let's just say, by some of the things I've just said there, just about how dirty US politics was, how corrupt it had become, how people were focused on their own personal private agendas, not at all on national security. That wasn't across the board. So I have to say that there was an awful lot of people that we worked with behind the scenes that, you know, I think we can be proud of what we were trying to do there. But boy, in terms of the domestic context, was that a mess? And, you know, I'd gone in there on my own, sort of from Brookings, taking a leave. I mean, I'd done that, you know, previously, but I'd gone in there with all the warnings that people had um, given me, ringing in my ears. Some people, you know, were very blunt with the warnings about, you know, what I was stepping into and that I should think twice about it and probably shouldn't do it. But others were said, look, you know, you've got to step up. You know, it's not just the patriotic thing to do, but it's, you know, the, the right responsible thing to do when you've got that kind of background and that experience you've worked with people before. And again, this is one of those moments, just like now, you know, that we're dealing with, you know, a really critical moment. You have to sort of you know, step up if you can and do something. But, you know, it was really, I just hadn't fully fathomed, even with all of these warnings, quite the nature of some of the people that I would be um, encountering. And it's, uh, and, you yeah. Know, I think I should have spent a lot more time, you know, probably reading, you know, some of your articles and others and, you know, kind of uh, Googling people uh, than, you know, it was focusing in on the Kremlin. And I, you know, obviously got myself into the middle of all of those problems there. And I'd been warned by, you know, colleagues going there for a short period of time, which I did, you know, and get out if you become part of the problem. And, but anyway, let's just say, <laughs> define that problem because it became really the sort of domestic maelstrom that um, you know I found myself embroiled in. Yes, and and uh, yeah, it's rather shockingly in your book you describe certain members of the White House describing you as the Russia bitch, and I apologise for my language there, but it's that's uh, all right. <laughs> it's pretty staggering um, way to describe a colleague. I'm going to move to some questions now. A couple which fit together quite well. One from Sarah who says, did you feel a resentment against the elite when you were young? And do you have sympathy for anti-elitism now? And I suppose you might extend that to, to some of the people who voted for Brexit and Trump. And then an, another question which is connected to that, what parallels do you see between the deindustrialized towns of Britain and America? Do they want the same things? So if you could sort of address both of those, I suppose they're quite thematically similar. Yeah, when I was younger, I mean, I describe actually in the book that, you know, I wasn't, you know, 
early on quite cognizant of what the elite was, right? Because, I mean, I grew up in a time where everyone was pretty much the same. You know, I, I'm still somewhat astounded when I see things on BBC America. I've been watching some of these Netflix series, you know, recently that's set in the UK. And, you know, people live in these giant houses and these big gated communities. I said, who lives like that? Because I, I never experienced it. You know, I grew up in a you know small town, you know, pit villages and you know, a few big houses, but they, they weren't that big. You know, so it was kind of more of a, it took me a while to kind of figure out that there was this, you know, kind of big gap. And I described that revelation in the book. I suddenly realized I was working class and there was a working class, you know, but it was more the kind of the feeling. And this is really, you know, some people have said that in the book, I'm very hard on Margaret Thatcher, but it was that kind of sense that people in London, let's put it that way, or in the South, because there's the North-South to guide perception there that I was much more cognizant of, just had no clue what it was actually like to live in the North and they didn't care and they felt that they didn't have to care. So yes, I did feel a lot of resentment, you know, towards that, that, you know, people would talk about, you know, the working class, let's just say, or workers and the things that they should do, you know, the the um, the Norman Tebbit attributed comment that he probably actually didn't make, but it sounds like something he would have said about getting on your bike and looking for work. That's what my dad did, you know, but there's only so far you can cycle. And if, you know, all the workers disappeared, it's now in Leeds. Good luck with trying to cycle to Leeds, you know, from Bishop Auckland. Well, you know, and then, and then he got his bike again. nicked, didn't he? So Yeah, exactly. And then my dad got his bike nicked, so everything had to be where he could walk to because he couldn't afford to get a new one or we could take the bus. And so, and, you know, and Margaret Thatcher thinking that everybody should be, an individual entrepreneur. Well, what if there are no customers because nobody's got any money? You know, her dad's shop, if it had been, you know, a grocery store in Bishop Auckland would probably have been shuttered because there was nobody could afford to buy fine cheeses and, you know, kind of nice foodstuffs. And, you know, they were lucky if they could scrape together enough, you know, at the local supermarket. So there's all that kind of feeling about nobody really gets it. And, you know, we, we were just statistics and, you know, kind of not living human beings. And that fits into that next part of the question, because, yeah, I still feel that. It's, I know it sounds nuts, but I still feel like I'm working class, particularly when I come to the UK, because I never lived anything else. You know, I left when I was... 18, you know, almost 18 to go to St. Andrews to university. You know, I lived in a you know, student flat there. You know, I wasn't exactly living in luxury there either. We had to put at the time 50 pence in the in the meters to keep the place heated. You know, and, you know, it kind of it was freezing cold and, you know, kind of uh, I was living on baked beans and toast, you know, this kind of thing. So, you know, all these odd jobs. And I come to the United States and, it, you know, it's it's here that I've lived in a, you know, very different, you know, moved up all the sort of socioeconomic buckets and, you know, my own office now, you know, kind of, <laughs> as opposed to sort of anything else. So, um, you know, when I think about myself in the UK context, I still think of myself as working class and from the North rather than, and so I, I still feel that, you know, very acutely, even though times have moved on and, you know, the, the world has changed. I also have a very large extended family here in the United States who live in the Midwest and who are from similar backgrounds. My husband's one of 12. I talk about that in the book. You know, the family have kind of moved everywhere. Um, they're, you know, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Nebraska. And they have a lot of the same sort of feelings that nobody else, you know, in Washington, D.C. or in the East Coast or the West Coast, in you know, all the, you know, kind of political and, you know, kind of cultural Hollywood-like societies has any clue about what their lives are like, doesn't care, you know, kind of what they think. There was a lot of resentment towards Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election because she just didn't show up. I mean, one of my in-laws said to me, look at her pallying around, drinking champagne, expecting that she's going to, you know, win the election. She didn't come here and it didn't come and talk to us. And Trump gave that impression to people that he was talking to them. And he did show up. He has all these rallies all over the place. 
and people listened. And it's that idea of being listened to, being seen, being recognised, being acknowledged. And people, you know, even if it's being manipulated, honestly, as, you know, kind of one would point out. But that feeling that somebody knows that you're there, uh, that really matters. And I think that has really kind of fed into our politics. It's not just the socioeconomic grievances, but this kind of idea that people talk about you and above your head and, and don't even notice that you're actually there as living human beings. So um, lots of great questions. I'm going to try and lump a couple of them together. Lots of people very interested, obviously, in the current situation. So John Newham says, while Russia has military superiority over Ukraine, the latter could offer protracted resistance in the event of an invasion. Uh, would such a prospect be a sufficient deterrent? And then another question from John Bassendine says, would it be sensible for the West and Russia to do a deal uh, and accept Russia's annexation of Donbass and Crimea in return for strong guarantees of the independence of the remainder of Ukraine, uh, its military power and right to, to join the EU. I don't know if such a deal is possible. but So does Ukrainian resistance offer enough of a deterrent for Putin? Conversely, should America and the West just, just cut a deal now and try and save us any future pain? Well, I mean, on the first question, it might well, um, depending on how Putin and people around him are playing this out. And that gets back to the comment I had earlier, if he's sitting in splendid isolation in the bubble of his various statues and, you know, Black Sea houses and various things, you know, maybe he's not getting sufficient information on, you know, kind of what the dynamic is like in Ukraine. You know, since 2014 and the annexation and uh, the war in Donbass and, you know, all of the other... Uh, rifts and ruptures in the relationship between Ukraine and Russia, there's not been a lot of, this is seven years, I'm not having a lot of contact. I mean, Putin's probably pretty, you know, clued into what people like Medvedchuk, you know, the um, Ukrainian oligarch that's the godfather of his kids is telling him. And, you know, maybe other, you know, um, elite level people running backwards and forwards and the Russian security services have penetrated things. But does he really know, you know, what Russian uh, ordinary people think or what, you know, ordinary Ukrainian people think about this issue? Kind of, you know, goes both ways there. Do Russians really know what's happening in Ukraine and elsewhere? There's an awful lot of, you know, Russians who have Ukrainian ancestry and, you know, talk, you know, kind of, uh, boldly about you know what they think people believe and want but you know that's you know those dynamics are, are very different aren't they and we've already seen actually there was resistance to Russia going further outside of Donbass in 2014. The Russians had this idea and Putin has already written many essays about Ukraine and Russia being one and the same not just recently but you know back in 2011 2012 and made statements about this and I think they bought into their own propaganda that Russian-speaking Ukrainians of which there are many many were just waiting to rise up in support of you know kind of Russia coming in and against the government in Kiev and they had this idea of Novorossiya, New Russia, kind of territories that extend, you know, kind of to Kharkiv, all the way down to Odessa, you know, pretty much, you know, taking off a huge swathe of um, eastern Ukraine. And that didn't happen. They actually tried to spark off more uprisings and more of the same things that they had in Donbass in that period. And there was pushback. You know, so again, it depends a lot on what kind of information he's getting and what his mindset is. Right. So I think that's kind of part of our problem again. It ought to be. But, you know, does he really think think this through? And I think that's part of why people think that's got to be a bluff. They must have factored that in. But you can't always be sure that people have um, have factored that in. Now I've kind of only lost the thread on. Well, the, the other um, the other the question was there. about you know should the Biden administration uh, yes, cut a yes, deal because you know there is an argument that you hear yeah. this that well American democracy is in crisis. Uh, you have the COVID pandemic is not over. There is no real appetite in America for 
any kind of military intervention, and, and Putin knows this, uh, Europe and, and America don't seem wholly on the same page. So uh, given that it's a, a small country far away to a lot of Americans, like, should they just cut the, the best deal they can right now? Well, it's not our deal to make, is it? It is, as you say, it's a country far away. First of all, it's not a small country. It's pretty large. Well, um, Britain would drop into it a lot of times, right? There. So, yeah, I know, but I know what you mean. I mean, it's kind of, um, it's the largest territorial state in Europe, with the exception of Russia, most of it in Europe. And it's got a population of 45 million. So it's pretty big. It's bigger population in Canada, you know, by twice, you know, so, you know, there's, 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 there's that, right? I mean, because look, I mean, I get exactly how you framed it. I mean, that is the view. But it's also, it's an independent state that's been recognised by the United Nations and, you know, kind of, unlike Taiwan, which is, you know, so, you know, seen there as, you know, technically part of, um, of China, you know, so we keep making those comparisons. And you know, it's been independent sovereign for 30 years and Russia has recognised that sovereignty and that territorial integrity at many different times. Russia just said the circumstances have changed and it keeps changing its views of how the circumstances have changed. It would be a terrible precedent for us to basically negotiate away Ukraine or to try to. First of all, the Ukrainians have their own ideas and agency. If they want to negotiate with um, Russia and um, you know, to ask for international assistance in brokering it, that's a different matter. And I mean, that was supposed to be part of the setup for the Normandy format. And the Minsk group was to try to help them negotiate it. You know, we have plenty of negotiations, you know, there's in the region, there's, uh, well, it didn't go too well, did it? Um, Nagorno-Karabakh, where we have another Minsk effort. Maybe things shouldn't be done in Minsk, by the way, we should think of somewhere else, you know, to you know frame those negotiations. And, you know, what we saw is a diplomatic um, resolution uh, didn't come to pass. We had Azerbaijan, you know, move in, uh, into Nagorno-Karabakh and take back by force what UN resolutions and things, you know, had uh, promised to it. And the Russians obviously, you know, presided over that one and started to kind of now broker in a different arrangement there. But I think, you know, the point that I'm making in here is this, that this is not ours to negotiate. We can provide a frame together and we, I mean, it has to be bigger. It should be in the United Nations framework of independence and sovereign states. But it would set a terrible precedent, not just for Europe, uh, or the former Soviet space, but for the rest of the world, if the United States, because of provocations from Russia, Russia trying to make it all about the United States, because we don't own Ukraine, Ukraine owns itself, started to kind of nickel and dime away or, you know, dismember Ukraine. We've been there before, mm. <laughs> you know, in World War One, World War Two. you know, kind of, um, I don't think we want to go down that path again. So some really interesting questions here. I mean, one is, I guess, how far could Putin go? So Glenn PC says, if Russia makes progress into Ukraine without significant cost, where do you think Putin would expand to next? Glenn PC says, how ambitious do you think Putin is with regard to expansion into Europe? Obviously, the Baltic states being, uh, are, 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 you know, watching all this incredibly carefully. What, what do you think is the upper limit of Putin's ambition? Look, I think the upper limit of Putin's ambitions and then the methods and the way in which he might do it are very different here. And again, you know, I think um, obviously the question is suggesting they might go into militarily, try to take Kiev, topple the government, you know, etc. And look, they've already went into Georgia. They stopped short at Tbilisi. But, you know, Mikhail Saakashvili is no longer the president of Georgia. He's back in Georgia, having been, you know, all kinds of things in Ukraine, actually. And now he's sitting in jail in Georgia, unbelievably useful outcome for Putin. It just took a while, you know, after the Georgian invasion in 2008. I'm sure Putin is absolutely thrilled by what's happened to Mikhail Saakashvili and would love to see the same thing happen uh, to Volodymyr Zelensky. 
So, you know, but there are different ways of happening. And this is all kind of Georgian infighting sparked off by that invasion in 2008. But the upper parts of, um, you know, the limits are the sky's the limit in Europe. If, if um, Putin can have influence in the UK and France and Germany, as well as in Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, the Baltic states, he will try to have it. And he can have it through corruption. He can have it by, you know, senior members of uh, former cabinets um, uh, working for oligarchs. He can do it by, you know, kind of manipulating the legal systems. He can do it by threatening things. He can do it through cyber attacks and, you know, kind of uh, hacking and releasing your emails and my emails uh, and, you know, discrediting people. There are all kinds of ways in which he can have influence. And the whole point is they're making sure that everyone takes Russia into account. And um, if he can sway foreign security and uh, defence policy calculations, he will. So it's not just a question of exerting Russian dominance in the former Soviet space, which I think he's done pretty effectively now, with the exception of Ukraine. Think about the CSTO being called into um, Kazakhstan, for example, the Collective Security Treaty Organization that you know um, Russia presides over. Uh, what's happened in Belarus, what's happened in, you know, as I said before, Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia and Azerbaijan. You know, pretty much Russia's got the position that it wants to there. And it's got, you know, the Baltic states, Poland in particular, terrified, which is great. So maybe they'll, you know, bear Russia in mind in the future. You know, as Putin would say, what's the matter if people fear us? You know, as long as they respect what we're going to do here. And, you know, there are different ways of applying influence. And I think that's what we have to bear in mind. So we have to decide what we want here. What kind of relationship do we want to have with Russia? Not just keep on reacting and trying to figure out, you know, what Putin wants all the time. So last last questions for you are on Germany, who are an interesting player in all of this. Claude Green says, is the West position totally undermined by Germany's reliance on Russian gas? You've alluded to the Nord Stream pipelines earlier. And Eric Levine says, how should Germany deal with Russia? One might also ask, how should we deal with how Germany deals with Russia? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the position of Germany is fascinating and, and, and we've got a couple more minutes, but I wonder if you could just kind of give us a few brief thoughts on that. Yeah, look, Germany is essential in all of this. And um, of course, it was Germany under Chancellor Merkel that was leading you know, the charge on trying to deal with um, you know, the Ukraine crisis, because of course, it was precipitated by Ukraine's application for an association agreement with the EU, not because of NATO at that particular juncture, but Russia saw that as a backdoor into NATO. And honestly, I think, you know, uh, Chancellor Merkel and others also bear some responsibility, you know, for all this going back to 2008, to the decision to have the open door policy for Ukraine and Georgia that was not likely to be able to be fulfilled because that was a compromise agreement that didn't have to actually happen. Germany was opposed, and Chancellor Merkel was personally opposed, to having a membership action plan uh, for Ukraine and Georgia. But they wanted to help the United States save face. They could have been firm and said, no, sorry, mm. you know, kind of, we want to stick to this here. We think that this is dangerous, it's counterproductive, we can't necessarily protect Ukraine and Georgia, and, you know, not now. Not ra rather than basically looking for a fail-safe formulation that tried to square the circle of... US support at the time for Georgia and Ukraine's membership action plan, and what was really a majority of European other, and our allies who didn't want to see that happen because of worries about all of the consequences. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, blame to be shared there, back to 2008, about it could have been put off for um, uh, a period. Now we're trying to put it off now, you know, basically, you know, how many years later, 14, you know, odd years later. So the, there is a problem going back to that. And also, Germany wasn't really 
watching what was happening in that period leading up to the Euromaidan and you know the crisis in Ukraine in 2014 because it was in the midst of elections again and forming coalitions and you know kind of was a bit sort of missing in action and comes in later. Germany has, as the questions have posed as well, caused an awful lot of problems by basically making all kinds of decisions on its energy mix where it has become dependent on Russian gas. And we've been warning Germany since the Soviet period, since the 60s and 70s and 80s, when all of the discussions were first made about gas pipelines and also oil pipelines, energy pipelines from the Soviet Union to Germany and the rest of Europe. And Germany has become part of uh, the Russian gas complex in Europe, the dominant part of that. And when Nord Stream 2 came along, it was made very clear by all of their European allies, not just the United States and the UK, that they were getting themselves into trouble. So that's, you know, really is on them. And, you know, of course, the United States have been put in this very difficult position of trying to figure out whether to sanction one of our closest allies or not. So I think, you know, what Germany does now is pretty consequential. And the decision that they make will be, you know, pretty fateful uh, for, you know, what happens next. And that, you know, really is on Germany. I think Germany can also play a very important role because of under some of the close linkages that they've actually had with German and uh, with uh, Russia and the trajectory of German policy, old Ostpolitik and onwards um, towards uh, Russia and explaining things, calling them out. There's also, you know, the kind of moral position that Germany has taken since World War II. They should be calling this out anymore. I mean, how did we get into World War II? In the first instance, was the dismemberment of countries. And at that point, there wasn't the United Nations, of course, but there was the League of Nations. And, you know, we were in a very similar structural problem that the UK was at the forefront of, trying to kind of figure out about, you know, German claims against Sudetenland. I mean, it does sound, you know, horribly uh, reminiscent of that. And Germany has taken such a strong moral stance since then uh, to uphold the sovereignty and independence of states. And they can do that again. They could take this forward and call this out for what it is and to help to frame the issue in a different way. So I think there are lots of things that Germany can do. Germany has a very strong legal stance, a very strong stance in support of human rights. And, you know, again, the upholding of the international system. I mean, they've been uh, you know, a very strong part of everything that's happened since World War Two, as they have, you know, rebuilt their society legal system and their political system. You know, the reunification of Germany, um, you know, was also done on the premise that we would, you know, uphold you know, the independence and sovereignty of other states um, again. So I, I do think that Germany has a, a quite a special role that they could play here, but in unity with everyone else. So, you know, I hope that moving forward, we will you know, continue to try to coordinate and come up with a common stance here, which doesn't mean, again, that we shouldn't be looking for some sort of solutions to this. We shouldn't be talking about, you know, how we could frame this differently. And doesn't mean that we have to, you know, find ourselves dragged into some kind of military confrontation with Russia. But it requires all of us to have clear thinking and to be, you know, very firm in how, you know, we formulate this. And I think, again, kudos to Ben Wallace, you know, for an opening salvo of laying that out and calling things out and, you know, framing things in, as to how they are. Mm. Well, I hope someone's listening in, to this in Berlin. That's what we've got time for tonight. Uh, there were lots of other great questions that, that we didn't get to, but um, we could have been here all day, I think. Fiona, thank you for taking us through your, your journey from, from Cole House to White House. It's a, it's a fascinating story, and I do recommend the book, both for its personal and its kind of political uh, perspectives. And thank you all for joining us. It's been a real, real pleasure. I uh, hope to see you again. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate it, everyone. Thank you.